We love because he loved us. And we live because you did not spare your only begotten and well-beloved Son. And Father, I pray that you would pierce our hearts this morning with this self-giving love, this resurrecting love. And I pray, Lord, that you would make us so mindful of your promises and so sure of your love that we are ready to obey you in anything you call us to do. Lord, I pray that this would bear fruit not just in things like sacrificial giving to the work of the gospel, not just in commitment to pray for and support those who have gone to the nations. Lord, I pray it would bear fruit in the, the daily acts of self-sacrifice that we give ourselves to in response to your love to us. And Lord, I pray that it would bear fruit in lifetimes of faithfulness, resisting temptation and believing the promise. Lord, we pray that you would make us like the Lord Jesus. We pray that you would do it by the power of your word as the Holy Spirit works among us in his name. Amen. I would invite you to open this morning to Genesis chapter 22, and I want to get the unpleasantness out of the way at the beginning. This is a glorious passage, but wretched things have been said about it, and I think that it's worth taking those things head on right here at the beginning, and then we can begin we can move on from these wretched things that have been said about this passage to enjoy the beauty and the glory of it together. So maybe you've heard about this guy named Richard Dawkins who wrote this book called The God Delusion. And fair warning before I read what he has written about Genesis 22, the words that you are about to hear are like the words of the serpent to, to Eve in the garden. That, that's the way this man speaks, okay? Richard Dawkins talks like the snake in the garden. This is what he says. God ordered Abraham to make a burnt offering of his longed-for son. Abraham built an altar, put firewood upon it, and trussed Isaac up on top of the wood. His murdering knife was already in his hand when an angel dramatically intervened with the news of a last-minute change of plan. God was only joking, after all, tempting Abraham and testing his faith. A modern moralist cannot help but wonder how a child could ever recover from such a psychological trauma. By the standards of modern morality, this disgraceful story is an example simultaneously of child abuse, bullying in two asymmetrical power relationships, and the first recorded use of the Nuremberg defense. I was only obeying orders. Yet the legend is one of the great foundational myths of all three monotheistic religions. I just want to make a couple of, of comments in response to this quote because um, 
Because this is the kind of thing that, that you might hear if you're in a, a kind of apologetic, someone's challenging the faith, and you need to respond to these kinds of, of, of queries, these kinds of questions. Maybe these questions even arise in your own heart when you read a passage like Genesis chapter 22. So the, I'm going try to try to stay calm and not get fired up because, because this kind of thing, I could easily get very angry in response to this. The first thing that I want to say about this is his only basis for having a moral objection to this is the morality found in the Bible. He has, if he, if he's, he's an atheist, which means he, all he has, according to his philosophical worldview, is an evolving standard of decency. So what right does he have even to say that there's a problem with this? On what basis does he claim a morality by which he would call into question what is done? How does he know that human sacrifice is wrong? How does he know that, that fathers shouldn't sacrifice their children if they have an apparition that tells them to do so? On what basis does he judge these things if he's an atheist? He has no basis for objecting to this morally. Secondly, this is not a joke, what happens here. And God is not, as he says, God is not only joking after all. As we're going to see, this is a test. This is a test of Abraham's faith. And God has good reasons for entering into the test. And we may respond to the challenges that come into our lives. We may respond and say, well, this traumatizes me. And I don't know how I'm ever going to recover from this. And I don't know how Isaac would ever be expected to recover from this. And what I want to say is, that is not the Bible's perspective. And that is not the perspective from which Moses writes this passage. And as we move through this passage, we will see exactly how the Bible presents Abraham and Isaac and, by extension, Sarah and all the rest of the faithful responding to this. The Bible wants to teach us how to respond to this, and it's not the way that Richard Dawkins responds to it. So the third thing I want to say about this is that Richard Dawkins has not read the passage sympathetically. And we want to approach the passage sympathetically. As we come at this passage, if you want to drop your eyes down to verse 11, we're going to see there that the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. That's the apex of the passage. It's, it's, it's almost like the passage is structured like the journey up the mountain. And at that moment, you're at the top of the mountain. And then you're going to start down the other side as we, as we continue to move through the passage. Look with me, if you will, at, at verse 1. Th this passage also comes in, in roughly two and, in some cases, four-verse units. So the first, we'll look at the first two verses here. Genesis 22.1. After these things, this is locating... Uh, this as after what we saw in chapter 21 when Isaac was finally born and then Hagar and Ishmael were sent away, which we looked at last week. And you'll remember that uh, just a few chapters ago, um, Ishmael was about uh, 13 years old back when he was circumcised in, in Genesis 17. And at that time, Abraham was 99 years old. And then when Abraham is 100 years old. 
Isaac is born to him. And now in 22.1, after these things. And we're not, we're not given a specific amount of time as to how much later this event takes place. But it seems from the passage that Isaac is now maybe in his early to mid-teens. Maybe he's 13 to 16 years old at the time that this takes place. After these things, God tested Abraham. I just want, to, want you to think about what this means. This means that this event is for Abraham. When I mean, I'm, a, I'm a professor at the seminary. When I administer the test, it is not for my benefit. The test is for the student's benefit. And, and this test that God administers to Abraham, this is for Abraham's benefit. This is for Abraham's good. That may seem odd. I mean, I, I don't think students typically think, they don't typically think, I'm about to have a test. This is for my good. But it actually is for their good. It, it's, it's giving them an opportunity to, to, to study. It's giving them motivation to work hard at their studies. It's giving them an opportunity to demonstrate what they've learned. And this test of Abraham is giving him an opportunity to show that he trusts the Lord. It's giving him an opportunity to consider what really matters in life. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, you notice right at the beginning of the passage, God calls to Abraham at the, at the high point of the passage in verse 11, at the summit of the mountain. Abraham's going to be called twice, so there are these points of contact between the beginning and the end. And then just as in verse 11 where he says, here I am, in verse 1 he said, here I am. So the beginning is going to be like the middle. And then verse 2, he said, take your son, your only son. And then the ESV reverses the order of the, of the clauses in Hebrew. In, in Hebrew, Isaac comes last. So, and, and, and the movement here is from general, your son, to more specific, your only son, to even more specific, whom you love. And then at last, his name is spoken. Isaac. Well, why is it stated this way? Well, Abraham tried to make Ishmael work. Ishmael's been dismissed. He's been sent away. And so the Lord is, is specifying, I want you to take Isaac. And as far as I'm concerned, you and Sarah, Isaac is your only begotten. And I know that you love him. You waited 25 years for me to empower Sarah to conceive. You've been looking for 25 years for me to fulfill the promise and for the seed to be born. And the way that this is worded, take your son, your only son, whom you love, it corresponds almost exactly to the way that the Lord, back in Genesis 12, said to Abraham, go from your country, general, and your kindred, more specific, and your father's house, even more specific. Moving from general to specific, threefold designation of what he's to leave behind. And, and we, we looked a couple of weeks ago at the, what I would propose to you as a sort of uh, chiastic or, or paneled structure of Genesis 12 through 22. And we talked about how Genesis 12 corresponds to Genesis 22. That first call to go is worded the same way that this call to go is. When the Lord says, and go... And then, in the same way that in Genesis 12, he said, go to the land which I will show you. Here he says, and go to the land of Moriah, 
and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So in the same way that chapter 12, uh, the place is going to be specified when he gets there, so also in 22, the place will be specified when he gets there. Why would, why would Moses word these things so, so similarly? Why would he set it up this way? Well, it's, it's as though the first test is now going to be brought to completion by the, by the last test. First test being, are you willing to go? Are you willing, are you willing to leave your past. I mean, everything that Abraham was brought up to know, all of his enculturation, all of that was, was held in his country and his kindred and his father's house. And the Lord says to him, are you willing to leave all your past behind? And now, Abraham's been looking to the future. The whole point about the promise of the seed is about the good things that God is going to do in coming days. These are... This, the seed represents future generations. It represents God's fulfillment of his promise to save one day in the future. And it's as though the Lord says to him, you left your past. Are you now willing to put your future on the altar if I command you to do so? And it's not just future hope. It's his beloved son. As so often in these narratives, verse 3 tells us, so Abraham rose early in the morning. And this is what we've seen from him time and again, isn't it? He gets told to do something, and there, there's no deliberation. He doesn't take some time to pray about it. He doesn't say, let me put out a fleece and see if there's water in it in the morning. God said to do it early the next morning. He's off. As I thought of this passage and what's implied here, I thought, well, thought to myself, I mean, the thought entered my mind. Maybe he left early in the morning so he wouldn't have to relate to Sarah what he was going to do. I don't know. Maybe they did talk it over. Maybe their marriage was, was such that she knew that when he said, I have to take Isaac to a mountain and the Lord has called me to sacrifice him. Perhaps her faith was such that she said, if that's what the Lord says, that's what you're to do. We don't, we're not told. We're told that Abraham rose early in the morning, verse 3 saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place of which God had told him. And so he goes. He's been called to go, and he goes. And then Moses records here in verse 4, On the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Now, there's a couple of things I think worth, worth contemplating here. Uh, th there's a three-day journey involved. And, and you know, the, in the Bible, sometimes this expression, a, th a three-day's journey, that'll be used, for instance, in the book of, of Nineveh. But Nineveh probably wasn't so big of a city that you, it actually would have taken three days to walk from one end to another. I mean, a person in the ancient world could maybe walk 20 miles 
and, and the historical remains of Nineveh are not 60 miles wide. So this could have been just a figure of speech that it was a, a really big journey uh, you know, for, for Jonah to travel through Nineveh, just a way of saying it was a long way, uh, like it's a big town. Um, so the, on the third day, I, this, this may not mean that there were three days intervening. It could have been that he left on Friday and got there Sunday. I mean, there's indications in the ancient world that they reckon three days like that. Certainly the gospel writers reckon three days like that. But it does tell us that there was an interval of time. Abraham had time to think about this. Abraham had time to contemplate the implications. And, and I would invite you to consider what that kind of agonizing would have been like as he's been commanded. Go to one of the mountains and offer him up as a burnt offering. And he loads everything up and he sets out on the journey and he's not there immediately. I mean, you know, some things like this, if you, can, if you can just expedite the process and get it over with and you don't have to think about it, maybe you could go through with it rather quickly, like, like maybe eating your broccoli or something. It's just over really fast. But this is, this is on the third day. You know, there's some time that passes. What was it that motivated Abraham to keep going? Also, notice that it tells us Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. This is very similar from what we saw in uh, 18.2. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men. Um, this lift, what, what, one of the things I think that Moses is doing in this passage is he's gathering together all the threads of Abraham's life. And, and it's as though he's already engaged the beginning with chapter 12, 1 through 3, when he says, you know, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, remember 12, 1 through 3, and go, and it's worded exactly the same way the command to go was worded in chapter 12, uh, to the, the mountain of which I shall tell you, and it sounds a lot like, you know, to the place I will show you. And now he's, he's draw, it's, it's almost like he wants to remind us of, of this long history that Abraham has had with the Lord, and this long wait for the fulfillment of this promise. And, and one more comment before we move on from verse 4. And I think, you know, Moses is the author of the book of Genesis. And Moses also experienced the events at Mount Sinai. And I think Moses noticed that the Lord, when they got out to Mount Sinai, the Lord instructed them to be ready to meet him on the mountain on the third day. That the people, they were to, to be ready at the foot of the mountain to meet the Lord on the third day. And, and it seems to me that probably Moses thought to himself, Abraham went to the mountain to sacrifice Isaac on the third day. We're to meet the Lord at Sinai on the third day. That detail is probably significant. And then as we go forward in the canon, I think that other later authors like Joshua, he's told to be prepared to cross the Jordan River on the third day. And then you keep going in the canon and Hezekiah, the king of Israel, is told by the prophet Isaiah that on the third day, first Isaiah comes in and he says, you're going to die. Get, set your house in order. It's over for you. And Hezekiah turns his face to the Lord and he prays to the Lord. And the Lord sends Isaiah back in and tells him, on the third day, you will worship the Lord in the temple. And, and you know, then you, you, you keep going across the Old Testament and you, you get to Jonah, who's three days and three nights in the belly of the whale. And then uh, you get to Hosea, who says, 
that when the Lord sends the people, this is the end of Hosea 5, beginning of Hosea 6, when the Lord sends the people of Israel into exile, it's going to be like a lion striking down a man. But then, after two days, he will raise us up. On the third day, he will raise us from the dead, Hosea says. And I, I think Hosea is probably putting together these third days. And then Esther, you know, she tells the people to fast and pray for her. And on the third day, she'll go intercede with the king on behalf of her people. And all of these things create a pattern of significant, significant things that happen on the third day in the Old Testament. The, the beloved son, the only begotten son, is offered up on the third day. A covenant is made between God and his people on the third day. The king of Israel is raised from certain death to worship Yahweh on the third day. Jonah, no sign will be given to you except the sign of Jonah. Three days and three nights in the belly of the whale. After two days, he will raise us up on the third day. And of course, Jesus goes before the Father to intercede on behalf of his people. On the third day. And I think this is all why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he doesn't say, as the scripture says, you know, he was raised on the third day. He says, in accordance with the scriptures, he was raised on the third day. So on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. And what we're, have, what we're getting here in verses 3 through 5 is we're getting the preparations for Abraham's obedience of faith. So he believes, and because he believes, he's in the process of obeying. And in verse 5, I'm, I'm going I'm to bring out what's actually here in the Hebrew text, but is not so much reflected in the English text. Because these verbs in verse 5, they're all plural verbs. In, in English, we have to represent a plurality of people doing an action with the pronouns. We have to say we or I or me or you, you know. But in, in Hebrew, they can build in the number of actors into the form of the word. And, and the translators don't necessarily bring across that these verbs are plural. So in verse 5, Abraham said to his young men, you two stay here with the donkey, I and the boy. And then here's a plural. We will go over there. And then here's a plural. And we will worship, and then his are plural, and we will come again to you. Now, Abraham is committed to obeying what he's been told to do. What is Abraham thinking? What? Well, the author of Hebrews tells us. The author of Hebrews over in the New Testament tells us what Abraham was thinking, and and. I would invite you to, you can either write down the reference or you can look at Hebrews 11. And in Hebrews 11, verse 17, the author says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Verse 19, He considered, the author of Hebrews is telling us what Abraham was thinking. The author of Hebrews is telling you what was going on in the mind of Abraham the patriarch. Okay? Now, what right does he have to do this? Well, I'm going I'm to argue that there's exegetical grounds for this conclusion in the text of Genesis. But right now, I'm just going to say 
he's inspired by the Holy Spirit. Okay, so, so the, the Holy Spirit inspires the author of Hebrews to say truly, rightly, without error, what Abraham was thinking. And he tells us, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Now let's go back to Genesis and let's come at the text from that perspective. I submit to you that it is only because Abraham believes God is going to raise the boy from the dead that he's able to obey. I'm going to say that again. I'm going to, a different, slightly different way. Abraham is only able to obey because he believes that God is going to raise Isaac from the dead. If he thinks, if I kill him, it's over. The seed is gone. That's the end. I don't see how he does it. But if he thinks, God has promised, through Isaac shall your seed be named. God has promised, I'm going to make a great nation of you. Your seed are going to be like the stars of heaven. And they're going to come through Isaac. Now God is telling me to sacrifice him. Well, after I sacrifice him, it, it must be that God is going to raise him from the dead. Now, why would he think that? Why would, from the book of Genesis, why would Abraham think God is going to raise Isaac from the dead? I, I, I think it's correct that one of the reasons he thinks this is because God has already done resurrection-like work in Isaac being alive. So in the Bible's worldview, when you have a barren woman, a woman who cannot bear children, and her, her dead womb is given life so that a baby comes out of it, it's like resurrection from the dead. And, and I just want to draw your attention to a, a couple of statements that would point this direction. One of them is in 1 Samuel chapter 2. In 1 Samuel 2, Hannah, remember her? She also was barren, and her dead womb also was given life, and Samuel was born to her. And at the end of 1 Samuel 2, verse 5, she writes, The barren has born seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. And then the very next statement, the Lord kills and brings to life. That's resurrection from the dead. And, and Hannah, in this, in this beautiful psalm, she juxtaposes a barren woman giving birth with the Lord killing and bringing to life. So I think she's putting those two ideas together because in, in the Bible's worldview, if a barren woman has a baby, it's like a dead body has been raised. So I think Abraham's already thinking about resurrection when he looks at Isaac. He looks at Isaac and he thinks, God raised, God brought life out of death. And so then he's told, go sacrifice Isaac. And he thinks, God's going to do it again. God's going God's to raise him from, I'm, I'll, I'll obey. But the only, the only thing that enables me to do this is my, my trust that God is going to keep his promises and raise Isaac from the dead. Just one other text. These are not the only ones. Romans chapter 4, Paul writes in, at the end of verse 17, he writes, In the presence of the God in whom he, that's Abraham, believed, who gives life to the dead 
and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Why? Because God gives life to the dead. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Application. If you don't believe, you won't obey. If you don't know the promises, you won't obey. But if you know the promises, and if you believe the promises, and if you make the promises prominent in your thinking, you'll be able to obey. It'll be for you like it was for Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. The author of, you see how the author of Hebrews puts Abraham's faith, believing that God would raise Isaac from the dead, and then he immediately follows that with looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith in 12, 1 and 2, who for the joy set before... we got to know the promises. And, and just a recommendation for you here, there's this recently published uh, volume entitled The Promises of God. It, it's, a, it's a devotional by Charles Spurgeon, and it's been updated by Tim Chester, published by Crossway. And every one of these opens with a promise from God and then a Spurgeon devotional. Now, you, you ought to read this with your Bible open and your brain turned on because, you know, Spurgeon's, sometimes his rhetoric sort of takes him away. But still, it's a great collection of promises of God. And, and often, more often than, than not, Spurgeon is very moving and, and, and powerfully effective in communicating the truth of the word. So I just want to randomly select some promises here. I'll start with the, the, the first ones. Um, early in the book, uh, promise of God, Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You believe that promise? You'll be empowered to fight impurity, corruption. How? Because you want to see God. That's why you fight it. That's why you resist temptation. You lay hold of the promise. Let me give you another one. Romans 16, 20. Paul to the church in Rome, the God of peace, will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. You cling to the promise. You cling to the promise and you seek faithfulness in the local church. And you, you, you lock arms with fellow believers. And you insist that we're going to carry out the spirit of this covenant here. We're in covenant with one another. And the God of peace is going to crush Satan underneath our feet. You hold on to the promise and it empowers obedience. If you don't believe, you won't obey. If you don't know the promises, you won't obey. But if you do, hallelujah. So I think when Abraham says, there's resurrection hope already in his story with Sarah giving birth. So I think when he says, I and the boy, we will go over there, and we will worship, and we will come again to you. He's believing God's going to raise Isaac from the dead, and that's what's empowering his obedience. Verse 6, 
And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering. Now, it's almost like Moses wants to put this in slow-mo. You know, and, and, and maybe even he puts his finger on the screen and he says, not only have I recorded this video in slow-mo, I'm going to move it frame by frame. And I'm going to tell you step by step the actions that were taken as they made their way up the mountain. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. Now at this point, I want to I um, pause and, and start making some observations about similarities between Genesis 21 and Genesis 22. In Genesis 21, um, Abraham is told by God to do what Sarah says. That's in verse 12. And to send Ishmael away. And now in 22, he's been told to sacrifice Isaac. And when it says there in verse 6 of chapter 22 that he laid the wood on Isaac, the wording of that is, is very close to the wording of 20, 21, 14, where he, he gives the bread and the skin of water to Hagar and laid it on her shoulder. It's the same wording in the Hebrew text. And then in verse 7, I think Isaac realizes what's happening. Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. He keeps saying that in this passage. Here I am. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And the wording of that in English even communicates the ambiguity. The placement of my son at the end of the phrase, it's open to the interpretation that the son is what is going to be provided. Into verse 8, so they went, both of them, together. And that statement tells us, I, I think this verse indicates that Isaac understood exactly what was going on. Isaac has, has realized we have wood, we have fire, my father has the knife, that, that, that word for knife, by the way, it's, it's, you, you could translate that the devourer, the eater. You know, sometimes you, you name, in the, in, the, in the Hobbit, they named the sword biter, right? And, and this knife is the devourer. He's got the, this is a knife that would have been sufficient not only to kill, but to dismember and arrange then the dismembered parts of the sacrifice on the altar to be consumed by the fire. Where is the lamb? God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. Isaac doesn't flee. Isaac doesn't 
object. And I think this points to the relationship between Abraham and Isaac. Uh, I'd, I'd like to think that Abraham has so loved his children that when he says to them, says to one of them, let's go. Okay, we go. And if one of them comes to a place where he realizes, um, this looks questionable. There's a trust. There's a love. There's a relationship that, that makes Isaac prepared to say, I don't know how this is going to turn out, but I trust my father. And I think that's captured at the end of verse 8, so they went both of them together. Abraham, if I'm right that Isaac is, let's just say he's 14. Abraham's 114 years old. If Isaac takes off running, he's probably not going to catch him. Verses 9 and 10 bring us to the summit of the, the peak. When they came to the place of which God had told him, and still we're in this step-by-step slow-mo, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son. And if he didn't know before, he knows now. And laid him on the altar. And there's no word of resistance. There's no word of question. There is a willing submission. He laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said again, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And so at this moment, the Lord is going to provide. The Lord lets Abraham get to the point where the knife is raised. And then it, when he says, now I know, it's as though the Lord is saying, you've passed the test. The Lord has not come into new knowledge. 1 John 3.20, he knows everything. He knows everything. He knows what's going to happen. He, he knows exactly how... The, the, the point of now I know that you fear God is, this is the moment that I can say that you have passed the test. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God. What does that mean, that he fears God? I think it means that Abraham, in believing the promise, he has also indicated, not, not only do I believe that, that you have promised me great things when you call me to leave my country and my kindred and my father's house, I also believe that if I don't obey you, it will be worse for me if I try to stay. If I try to stay and keep my country and my kindred and my father's house, you will ruin my life. I fear you. And so he believes the promise, 
And he believes that there's going to be judgment. And so he obeys. And then I think also when the Lord says, take your son, your only son, whom you love. I think Abraham, he believes God's going to raise him from the dead. But he also knows if I try to keep this child and I don't obey this God and I try to keep him for myself in my own way, it will ruin everything. And so there's this healthy fear of God that says, I dare not transgress him. I dare not try to keep his gift apart from his way. If I do that, the gift will be ruined. And so again and again, Abraham has chosen the giver over the gift. That's what he's doing. By faith, fearing God, he has said, God, you are the ultimate priority. Yes, I'd love to have my family. Yes, I'd love to have descendants, like you've promised. But what's more important than those things is you. Now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. The word translated there, you have not withheld your son, when they, when they, when they translated Hebrew into Greek, they used a particular uh, Greek term that Paul employs in Romans 8.32 when he says, what then shall we say in response to these things? He who did not, we could do it, withhold, the ESV renders it spare, his own son, but freely gave him for us all. And, and I think Paul is drawing a connection between the willingness of Abraham to offer up Isaac and the willingness of the father to offer up the Lord Jesus. So in, in verses 9 and 10 and 11 and 12, we're at the summit of the peak. Well, right before that, in verses 7 and 8, Abraham had talked about how God will provide. Verse 8, God will provide. And um, in, that word provide comes from Latin, uh, a Latin uh, combination, providere, that means see to. Or, or even foresee, you know. And so even in our language, when, when, when I might say, uh, if, if Matt says, um, hey, I need you to pick this up for the men's camp out, I might say, yeah, I'll see to that, meaning I'll provide that. So, so we have the same kind of overlap in meaning between seeing to something and providing something. And so the Lord is going to see to this. And look at what happens in verse 13. Again, Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, it's as though right then, right then, this ram, his horns get caught in the thicket, and there he is, just when he's needed. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. There's clear, a clear substitution here, a clear replacement. Isaac is delivered because the ram is slain in accordance with the Lord's will. Verse 14, so Abraham called the name of that place. You could, you could translate this, the Lord will see to it. Or you could translate it, the Lord will be seen. They render it here, the Lord will provide. You've got a footnote on it in, in the lower margin 
It says, or will see, and then there's another footnote, or he will be seen, as, as it goes on to say, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Now, Abraham is, he's in the mountains of Moriah. Over in 2 Chronicles chapter, chapter 3, verse 1, we read, Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. So the place where Abraham has taken Isaac to sacrifice him is the same location that the temple would later be built. And um, there, there, there are only a couple of texts in the Bible where you have these three terms all used together, burnt offering and ram and fire. Those three terms, all used together, only occur here, Genesis 22, and Leviticus 16, Day of Atonement. And, I'm, I'm sorry, not, not fire, appear, the, the, this verb, uh, he will be seen, you could render it that way, appear. So, ram, burnt offering, and be seen, and in Leviticus 16, uh, the Lord says, I will appear in, in, the, in the holy place, as when the high priest enters. The other place is Leviticus 8 and 9, when sacrifice at the tabernacle is instituted. So there's a strong connection, I think, made by Moses himself, by the use of these terms, between the, the offering of Isaac and the institution of sacrifice and the Day of Atonement. Uh, commenting on this reality, Stephen Dempster says, it's as though what happens for Isaac with the substitute of the ram. It's as though it's institutionalized for the people of Israel. It's as though the whole nation is given what Isaac has been given in the sacrifice. And then earlier in the service today, we read Isaiah chapter 53. And in Isaiah 53, when it says, um, he was led like a sheep, or like a, like a lamb to the slaughter, and like a sheep before his shearers is silent. Same word for lamb appears here in verse 7. Where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And I think it's, it's definitely possible that Isaiah is reflecting on Isaiah, I'm sorry, Isaac, um, silently going with Abraham, being led like a sheep to the slaughter, as he writes, of what will be fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. Verse 14, Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord. In this case, it's Mount Moriah. Later in the Old Testament, on Mount Zion, when the temple is constructed there, it will be provided. And then, later still, when the heavens go dark, and the forsaken cry is heard, and the veil of the temple is rent in two. On the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. So that provision corresponds to the, the confidence that God would provide in verses 7 and 8. And then, and then we have, in the same way that in verses 3 through 6, we had Abraham making preparations for the obedience of faith. Now, in verses 15 through 18, we have the way that Abraham is blessed because of his obedience of faith. So we need to understand this clearly here. 
God is not going to reward Abraham as a wage earned for work done. But God is going to confirm promises made because Abraham believed. So Abraham believed, and it was reckoned to him for righteousness, uh, Genesis 15, 6. And Abraham's faith was confirmed when he offered up Isaac. And so the promises are now reiterated. And here in, in verses 15 through 18, earlier promises are going to be brought forward and added to. And again, it's like Moses is drawing together all the threads from Abraham's story. Verse 15, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. This is what the author of Hebrews is going to allude to. Having no one greater by which to swear, he swore by himself. In other words, the Lord is saying, this is my covenant. I'm keeping this covenant. I'm keeping this covenant. And if this covenant is broken, it will result in my death. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And this is worded to add to and increase the certainty that was stated back in 12, 1 through 3. I will bless you. I will bless those who bless you. Now it's blessing. I will bless you. I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring. I will surely multiply. Earlier, you know, Abraham has been promised. I'm going to multiply you. Now the Lord is saying, multiplying, I will multiply your seed. As the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore... Stars of heaven, 15, go outside, look at the stars. Sand on the seashore, it's not exactly the same, but it's similar to 13 when he said, your descendants will be as the, as the dust of the earth. Now it's sand on the seashore, another similar image. Clearly, Isaac is going to be multiplied. We're going to have a whole, a whole bunch of people come from Abraham. And then it goes singular. In the middle of verse 17, it says, and your offspring, your seed, shall possess the gate of his enemies. And we've, I think we've talked about this before, but the word seed in Hebrew functions just like a word like deer in English. You can have that singular deer, or you can have those plural deer, that flock of deer. And we know whether we're talking about one or many by the other words around it. So also with Hebrew. We know we're talking about the singular seed by the singular pronoun, his enemies. So he's gone from talking about all the people that are going to descend from Abraham to the one descendant of Abraham. Verse 18, and in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Uh, so Genesis 12, 3, in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now it's in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. He's talking about Jesus. Paul tells us in Galatians 3, the blessing of Abraham has come to the Gentiles in Christ Jesus. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. And then the passage closes with that genealogy that we've talked about before. What we have in this passage is Abraham, who in chapter 12 left everything. In chapter 13, he was willing to give everything. Lot, you pick the best part of the land. 
In chapter 14, he's ready to risk everything. Lot's been captured. Abraham puts his own life on the line to go, to go reclaim Lot from a coalition of kings. Chapter 15, he believed everything. He believed and it was reckoned to him for righteousness. Chapter 17, he circumcised everybody in his household. Chapter 18, he interceded for the wicked of Sodom. Chapter 21, he received the fulfillment of the promises when Isaac was born. Chapter 22, he obeyed everything that God commanded him to do. And put it all on the altar, ready to sacrifice everything. And in this passage, the beloved son, born of promise, born of miracle, almost like somebody born of a virgin, was led silent like a lamb to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shearers, carrying the wood up the hill to the place of sacrifice. Christians from long past have seen in Isaac a, a type or a model of the Lord Jesus. This is what Melito of Sardis in the middle of the second century wrote. He says, as a ram, he was bound, he says, concerning our Lord Jesus Christ. And as a lamb, he was shorn. And as a sheep, he was led to slaughter. And as a lamb, he was crucified. And he carried the wood on his shoulders as he was led up to be slain like Isaac by his father. But Christ suffered, whereas Isaac did not suffer. For he was a model or a type of the Christ who was going to suffer. And then he goes on to say that ram was slain and ransomed Isaac so also the Lord slain saved us and the Lord being bound released us and the Lord being sacrificed ransomed us this is our faith this is what we believe if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian this is what Christians believe. Christians believe that we who deserve to die, the Lord saw to it. The Lord provided a ram. The Lord provided a substitutionary sacrifice who was slain in our place. And we believe that if you turn from sin and you trust in the Lord Jesus, like Isaac, you'll be delivered figuratively speaking, raised from the dead, anticipating an actual resurrection from the dead one day. Commenting on this passage, Charles Spurgeon quoted the hymn by Isaac Watts, Just in the last distressing hour, the Lord displays delivering power. The mount of danger is the place where we shall see surprising grace. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would cause us to hope in Christ, rejoice in Christ, believe in Christ, and Lord, I pray that you would enable us to wrap our arms around the promises that we might 
obey. Lord, help us to crucify our flesh. Help us to to obey everything that you've commanded us, to leverage everything that we are, everything that we have, to put it all at risk, to put it all on the altar because we believe everything that you have promised. And Lord, hereby, I pray that you would make us a generous, hospitable, self-sacrificial, Christ-like people. I pray that you would make us people who will proclaim the gospel because we believe that it has saving power. I pray that you would make us people who are willing to have confrontational gospel conversations because we believe that you're merciful and that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I pray, Lord, that you would make us ready to to do hard things for people, to go the extra mile for people, to give when we're asked of, because we believe that the display of your, your love and the communication of your word will transform people's lives. Because we believe that you'll raise the dead, that there will be a new heavens and new earth, and that the reward is worth it. Lord, we ask all these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.